How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, today's a special day. We're starting a new series um, through the book of Psalms. Um, I think this is going to be a really interesting series. It's designed to kind of help us navigate what I consider kind of a quagmire. What many of us are reading, what we're hearing about how, how we understand ourselves um, can be oftentimes very complicated and very misleading. Um, if, if I started with a basic question and just asked you, why do you really do the things you do? That, that seems perhaps more simple on the surface than, than it actually is. Without question, all of us in this room do things from time to time that we wonder why we did them. They, they don't make us feel good. They actually kind of embarrass us if other people knew. And yet, it doesn't seem that we can fully break from those things. For 25 years, I've counseled people that their hearts are literally broken because they have such strong affections for things that they don't fully understand. And their hearts are equally broken that they have no affections for the things that they want to have affections for. And just that brief contemplation pushes us into a reality that very few of us are comfortable with. Why are there people in this room that suffer from anxiety that they can't explain? Week after week, they face certain things, certain events can transpire in front of them, and before they know it, they're in the very grip of an anxiety that changes the way their body functions, and they become incapacitated. And yet they can't talk to enough people, they can't read things, they can't take enough medication to where they can just break free. You see, the way our mental faculties function is a very, very intriguing thing. So. Throughout this series that we've entitled The Anatomy of the Soul, we're going to actually be kind of sorting out some of what our culture has to say. And when you look at our culture, particularly when it comes to emotions, there, there's two radically different sides to this end spectrum of the very same issue and how we are to handle those. One side says that your emotions are everything. And so ultimately, it pushes you to believe that, all right, I, I just need to live out my authentic self. I need to say what I think. I need to be able to just show up and let myself go. The other side says that those emotions are a bad thing. And you need to be almost on the stoic end of the spectrum where you disattach yourself 
from all of those feelings. And the more you can do that, the more stable and consistent life that you'll be able to live. And so those polarize you by making one end of the spectrum the whole thing and the other is villainized or tyrannized in the other, on the other side. But both sides cause us to idolize one aspect of our humanity while demonizing the other. The Psalms, on the other hand, depict a wholehearted way of living that allows us to properly understand how to engage with these various parts of who we are without demonizing one part of it for the sake of the other, but to live as human beings that are able to understand who we really are. Now, the title that we have chosen for this series was adapted from, from the introductory discourse um, from John Calvin's commentary on, on, on the Psalms. And he has this very interesting perspective of the Psalms because he said they actually function like a mirror in which you can stand and see things, parts of you that you couldn't see any other way. This is how he wrote that. He said, I have been accustomed to call this book the Psalms. I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. For there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities. In short, all the distracting emotions with which minds of men are wont to be agitated. The other parts of Scripture contain the commandments which God enjoyed, enjoined His servants to announce to us, but here the prophets themselves, seeing they are exhibited to us as speaking to God and laying open all their inmost thoughts and affections, call or rather draw each of us to the examination of himself in particulars in order that none of the many infirmities to which we are subject and of the many vices with which we abound may remain concealed. It is certainly a rare and singular advantage when all lurking places are discovered and the heart is brought into the light, purged from that most baneful infection, hypocrisy. I don't know that there's one single charge against the church is in our culture that's quite as great as the charge of hypocrisy. Oftentimes that charge is ill-founded, but many times it's not. And I think where it's not ill-founded, it's due to what he just described. We just really don't understand ourselves. We can tell people that we do things that we don't do. That's hypocrisy. We oftentimes speak better than we live. And there seems to always be this strange dichotomy between, between what we allege to be and what we hope to be and what we really are. And I think it's rooted in all of this. In essence, Calvin, is, Calvin believed that the Psalms revealed the full spectrum of our human faculties in a way that allows us to understand the inner workings of ourselves in a way that would that otherwise would remain completely mysterious or just concealed altogether. 
And the rare and the singular advantage, as he says it, is that when all the lurking places are discovered and the heart is brought into the light, it will only then be purged from that baneful infection, hypocrisy. In other words, the Psalms give you a glimpse into who you are. It's somewhat ironic to me over the years, you know how often I harp on reading your Bible. I don't think that there's another place in the Bible that people want to go to read. I would venture to say that if you've tried to read through the Bible starting on January 1st in Genesis, typically by the time you get to the middle of Exodus, it's like, oh, what am I doing? And if you ever find yourself quitting but continuing, you no longer have the intestinal fortitude to just muscle through, you will always deny every other part of the Scripture to go to the Psalms. And I think that's because, I, I don't know for sure, I don't know that any of us could say that for sure, but I, I, I sense it's because it seems so real. There seems so much emotion. There seems so, it seems to connect with us. But this part of it is frightening. If what Calvin is saying is true, it takes courage to really understand what, what it is that the Psalms are saying. Now, today, by way of introduction, we're going to consider what Christianity says about the relationship and the function of our mental faculties. That's not what we heard in those verses, but it's going to be kind of a foundation upon which we can, we can build and construct this entire series. Because if you don't understand how it is that your mental faculties function, you're kind of a wash. It's kind of a a confusing mystery as to what it is that the Psalms is saying about certain things. So we're, we're going to look at what the Bible says to Christians about the function of our mental faculties, and then we're going to look at these verses that we heard from Psalm 119, verse 9 to 16, that, that are a brief explanation of how to live a good life. It all takes place in the economy of seven short verses. So let's start with this function of our mental faculties. Immanuel Kant was a 17th century German philosopher who actually shapes almost the entirety of modern philosophical and psychological theory when he made two really crucial assertions. So while it was still in the the 1700s, you had a man that was able to say, okay, this is how I think we live. And the first assertion he made was we experience reality through our senses. And the second assertion he made was due to the limitation of our senses, our perception of reality will never be quite real because it will never be complete. Now, the first assertion is something that is a little bit beyond your normal contemplation of how, how you experience the world. He's basically saying we're connected to reality in a way that's through this veil of our empirical perception. And so he's speaking deeply to this notion that your eyes really don't see. Your eyes are merely lenses through which light passes, and that light is transferred to your optic nerve, and it's passed through your nervous system into your brainstem. And your brainstem is utilizing a mental map called a worldview to sort out that information. So it's really your brain that sees. In that sense, your ears don't hear, your nose doesn't smell, your tongue doesn't taste, and your fingers and the rest of your skin doesn't really feel. They're just 
profoundly sensitive receptors that are capturing neuroscience is telling us somewhere between 10 and 15 million impulses per second and sending it to your brainstem. But that is your connection to reality. So if we, perchance, were able to lose one of those sensory receptors like our eyesight or our hearing, which happens, by the way, as you get older, for those of you young dudes, um, but as we lose that, the tether that we have with reality is threatened. And so oftentimes you see people that are blind, that have cultivated their sensory perception of smell and hearing over the years to where they can actually see better than most of us with eyes. And so this is a remarkable assertion, remarkable assertion. The second assertion he made basically is speaking to the simple fact that no matter how keen our eyesight, our hearing, our smell, our taste or our touch is, it's limited. It's limited. And given those limitations, we can never be in any given setting and capture all that can be captured. And so your snapshot of any experience that you can recall in your mind, your, your mind's understanding and perception of what is happening in this room is incomplete. None of us are capable of grasping all that can be grasped. Those profound, those two assertions, as I said, they, they completely altered the course of philosophy, but they deeply impact our understanding of how our mental faculties actually function. Now, I think if you take what Kant has said, you can illustrate it, it some, something like this, and there's several parts to this. When you begin to look at what Christianity says about who we are as human beings, which is truly profound, I think, um, you can actually draw a line from the inside of a person to the outside of a person. And so scripture says, essentially, you can know a tree by its fruit. That who you are in the inner parts of your being can be seen by what you do on the outside. And so Jesus said it in kind of interesting ways. When Jesus said it, he said it this way. He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, the words that tumble from our lips are coming directly from our hearts, whatever that is. And so there's this connection that ultimately people can tell who we are like on the, out, on the inside by what it is we do on the outside. Now, the Scripture does, however, give us some descriptors of what is going on on the inside. That simple model would suffice enough to say you need to be warned that this is the way we all function. But the Bible goes beyond that in its detail in describing three mental faculties that lead up to our conduct on the outside. The closest to that transition from the inside of you to the outside of you is your will. Now, in theological circles, I think the will has gotten far too much credit over the years. You've known, most of you, since the Protestant Reformation, there was a huge debate about your will being free. Now, I don't think the Bible describes the will as quite being free. The, the will itself as a functioning mental faculty is just merely capable of changing your thought life into actions. So if I was to want a drink of water, in a very complex way, my will can actually mobilize the movement of my hand to pick up a glass, to put it to my lips, 
and to pour it carefully so it doesn't even spill and to set it back down on the table. All of that is the expression of my will. Now, that calls into question, what is the will will to do? See, this is a profound question because this begins to probe into those initial why questions that I were giving you in the beginning. Does the, is, the, is the will really acting willy-nilly? Does it have nothing to go from? Or is there some deep-seated thing that is really governing the will? Now, the Bible says there is. And the next mental faculty that leads to what the will chooses to do is what it opposes to do is called a set of affections. Now, all of us possess a, a broad spectrum of affections. They, in a general, generalized way, they can be cordoned into, categorized into two basic groups. You have affections that promise you pleasure, positive, and then you have a whole set of equal or greater set of affections that prom promise you displeasure, negative affections. And so it, within this body of this mental faculty in your affections, you have some things that you want and other things you, you don't want. Now, it's the affections that pass up an understanding to the will. And the will is thereby obligated to pursue its pleasure and to avoid its displeasure. Now, before we jump on here, I, I just want you to consider this for a moment because this can become far more complex than you might perceive because say if you're on a diet and you go through, you know, as you're, you're walking through a restaurant or in the mall and you see some unbelievably attractive desserts or, uh, you know, voodoo donuts or whatever, and, and you immediately, your affections go out to those donuts and you're going to eat those donuts unless something else happens. But if you're on a diet, the greater affection of how you see yourself losing weight wins. So it's not as simple as saying plus or minus. You have very complex realities emerging from the affections. So for the sake of your future skinny self or yourself getting back into your $150 jeans, you walk by the donuts. And it's not that you don't want them. It's just that you want something else more. Now, what is it that determines the affections? What we like and what we don't. What pleases us and what displeases us. This is the third of these internal mental faculties that is the foundation of everything according to Christianity. It's the intellect. Now, going back to Kant, what Kant said, it's... It, your connection, the tether that you have with reality, is passing through your brain. And so as we experience and perceive things in life, that perception creates and builds these affections, both positive and negative. And in my life, if we were to go to like a buffet, and I was put a tray, a tray on, the, on the rail and I'm sliding it down, and we, we come to a place where all the meat is displayed, you're never going to see me reach under the glass and pull out meatloaf. Now, before I get any emails from those of you that say, well, you've never tasted my meatloaf, there's no such thing as good meatloaf. How the rest of you have been deceived, I, 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 I cannot understand that. But see, there's something about my experience that has caused me to interpret that experience in a way that never promises me pleasure. 
So my will is obligated to avoid that displeasure and choose something else. And so you can see that all manifested. This, this tray is just simply sliding down these rails. And that is how, how it is that we, this complex process. And again and again, it's just shown in Scripture. In Proverbs 23 and verse 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The scriptures replete with this model. Now, that still begs the question, what, what are the emotions? Because there's no place really in this so far for the emotions. Now, I believe that the emotions are circumstantially revealed affections. All they are is peripheral. And so when you love something, if you have a deep affection or a deep attachment to your automobile and you go out in the parking lot and... The, the, the glass from the rear light is laying on the ground because someone backed into you and then drove away without a note, without any word, it's probably going to elicit from you the affection of anger. And so anger is emerging in this system because of the previously established affections that you have toward your car. And the circumstance of finding the light on the ground brought out these affections. Very similarly, if a person in this room and we put the lotto numbers up and you happen to have the ticket in the back of your, your pocket and you pull it out and you say, I won. The circumstance of that number confirming what you've already purchased and what you've got there would elicit this celebration. So the affections are, the, or the, the affections are what are residing there, but it's the circumstance that exposes emotion that tells you what's there. So the the actual function of, the, of, of our emotion is not near what we think it is, but it's still very important because it reveals to you what oftentimes is undisclosed in your affections. It causes you to see that there are things at work in you that surprise you because your emotion, you have, a, you, you have attraction or emotion towards things that you don't fully understand. And so the emotions are like a light shining through the system. It's a very interesting process indeed. So the way our mental faculties function actually causes, based upon that understanding of those faculties that God has given us, biblical writers throughout Scripture directed Christians to pay attention to how they think and perceive the world around them in order to live a life that is good and honoring to God a life which includes the pursuit of meaningful things as well as the freedom to avoid the destructive things. This is also the basis of Jesus' promise in regard to the benefit of biblical truth when it's taken deeply into the heart. It enables us to know true freedom as opposed to being held captive by misperception. The things that will destroy us are now brought to light. And Jesus just simply says it in a single verse, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Perhaps the most frightening verse in all of Scripture is when Jesus, in the midst of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? On the surface, that statement doesn't even make sense. But what he's talking about is your worldview. He's talking about the way you interpret and sort out all that's going on around you. And he says, if what you think is light isn't. There's no recovery. You'll never overcome it. You're stuck. And so there's this interesting way that the Bible profoundly describes 
how it is we function as human beings, where these impulses come from, where they take us, what needs to be avoided, what needs to be pursued. All of it is, held, is captivated in that. So let me show you how this works from the book of Psalms by taking a look at what David said probably, most likely David, in the authoring of Psalm 119 on how to live a good life. The verses that we heard describe in seven verses how to live better than most of us have ever lived. Seven short verses. Now, in those verses, we see three things. He poses a rhetorical question, he answers the question, and then he explains how to do it in seven verses. So the question itself appears in verse 9a. Very straightforward. How can a young man keep his way pure? Now, the original Hebrew literally read in a way that posed the question even more directly than that. It, it literally read, when you put it all together in the way that the grammar and the syntactical function, semantical range is working, it literally said, with what can a young man keep his way utterly pure? With what can I do that? The term for purity that he used here carried the idea of being clean and innocent. Now, the question itself is a very interesting question because it can be read two ways. It can be read as a young person avoiding the defilements of life or a person who's trying to correct defilement that's already there. With what can I fix this? It could be read. So it has this double reference. Very interesting. So the question itself is pretty straightforward. With what can I maintain utter purity? Can I keep my life pure? Now, the answer is given equally short, equally brief, in verse 9b, and his answer is just as straightforward. It says, by guarding one's life according to your word, to the word of God. In other words, his answer is simply that knowing and applying what God has said about us, about others, about the world, and about himself will protect us from becoming defiled. Those of you that are young, that maintain, still have some vestige of innocence, this is the way you preserve that and keep it from loss. For those of us that have already messed it up, this is the way you come home. This is your way back to a life that's worth living. And so the answer is pretty straightforward. It's pretty straightforward. In light of... I, I think in light of the bombardment that we have of all the instruction that tells us how to be happy, how to be successful, how to be more creative and inspired, this is really refreshingly simple because it just simply says, know what God says and do it. If you want to restore your life from being completely destroyed, find out what he says and just do it. Guard your life. And so there's this really simple question, straightforward answer, and then in the following verses we have the explanation. The instruction that he gives in regard to actually accomplishing his answer, those instructions are given in verses 10 to 16, and they, they speak of two internal elements that are sandwiches for one external one. And so he says there's really kind of three components to this. He said the first, the first is his heart, which is the first internal component, so in verse 10, he explains the intention, the intention of seeking, remaining steadfast to, or in other words, not wondering, and storing up what God says is in his heart. Now, the Hebrew concept, the Hebrew term is labed for heart, and the New Testament is cardia. 
Um, but the term, the Hebrew term lab referred to the whole center of your, of your being. It, it can be a reference at different places throughout the Old Testament to every aspect of your mental faculty. It can be the seat of your emotion. It can be the seat of your intellect. It can be the seat of your will and decision-making. And so he's saying, I am taking the best thing and putting it in the best place. That's how I'm going to do this. I'm going to take the best thing, which is the Word of God himself, and I'm going to put it in the best place that I possess in this inner sanctum. He said, that's what I'm going to do. Now, according to our previous illustration of our mental faculties, he's talking about informing the intellect with God's Word, shaping and fashioning the way he thinks about things from according to the Word of God. And so, by doing that, every part of the system is now driven by a perception of the world was different than his own. The intellect is affected, the affections are determined, the will is obligated, and lo and behold, the man lives just the way he thinks. So the first thing is, what he does is internal, it's his heart. The second thing is external, his lips. Now, it's interesting to me that in verse 13 and 14, it speaks to this external conduct as he commits himself to using his lips to make what he's knowing on the inside known to others on the outside. And in verse 14, he once again affirms his delight in the Scripture that is compared to the delight he has known from possessing abundant wealth. Let me explain that a little bit more. Because the English translations of this really don't, they're not really doing them credit. It, some people would say, well, I, I'd say the majority of commentators would say, well, he's saying this wisdom is better than riches. That's not what he's saying. He is saying possessing this is as delightful as any possession again of wealth. Any possession I've ever pulled into my life is like that. So it's a comparative. It's not a superiority or a subordinate. It's, it, now, he, he does that in, I, I think, at least three other places in the psalm, in the rest of Psalm 119. He, he does do that. He'll show you that it's better than fine gold. But that's not what he's doing here. He is saying, bringing this into my heart would just like getting a raise. I wanted to go out and celebrate. I wanted to call my friends over and tell them about it. I, wanted to, I, I love hearing about it in their lives. I love participating in this. This is one of these celebrations where we need to be able to distinguish it from the common day-to-day. -day. He said, that's how good it is. And he said, I'm going to say it that way. That's the way I'm going to communicate it to others. So the heart is internal, the lips are external, and then he comes back in the sandwich structure internally with his eyes. Now, in, verses, in verse 15, he commits himself to meditating upon and having his eyes fixed upon God's ways. Now, God's ways is a reference to how he perceives God at work in his life and the rest of the world. Now, without question, Many of us, can, my wife grew up in the, in, in the South, and in 1968, she was in Hurricane Camille. And literally, right now, there are millions of people hunkered, hunkered down wondering if they're going to make it. <laughs> literally millions wondering, what's happening? Is this going to get worse? Is the surge going to just overpower everything? And sometimes, I'm not saying that Hurricane Irma is a, is, a, is a good thing, 
But sometimes it's not as bad as we think to see that we have no control. And we're suddenly catapulted into a state of duress because we can't fix it. We can't call our dads or our moms. We can't call a cop. We're completely at the mercy. The mercy of a natural force. And see, this is what he's saying. He's saying, I am going to fix my eyes. I'm going to keep my eyes peeled to see what it is you're doing in this world of ours. So he says, that's how you accomplish the answer. That's how it comes to fruition. So what we, what we see here in the economy of seven short verses is an explanation of how to live a good life. Whether it's a young person keeping himself or herself from the destructive paths that she sees around her, or even a person that has actually landed in that destruction. And now, like the prodigal, is coming to his senses, and he's saying, what do I do? Seven verses, it works both ways. The key is knowing the Word of God and steadfastly applying it to everyday life. In that sense, it's not, it not only affirms what the Scripture says about the relationship and the function of our mental faculties and the primacy of our intellect and the governing and guiding, guidance of our lives, it also has this strange way of sounding very much like David's son Solomon's words to his son years later. In Proverbs 3, Solomon rehearses this to his son. He says in verse 5 to 8, he said, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. Now here, Solomon is pushing us into something that we're going to see over the next several weeks. The truth in the heart doesn't land quite the way you think it is. In fact, whenever the truth of God goes into your heart, it creates a war. It creates a conflict. And here Solomon is telling his son, he's explaining to his son, when you find out what God says, it's like hearing a voice that is saying, you or me, your way or my way. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he'll make, your, he'll make straight your paths. Be not wise, arrogant in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. I don't know how much or how, how much resources you've dedicated to psychology or to counseling or how much coaching you've gone through, but for those of us that have been heavily involved in those fields, this is refreshingly simple. Just think differently. There's consequences to your ideas. You're never going to live any better than you think. So chasing after your authentic self might not be the best path to the best you. It just might not. I hope you'll hang with us. It's going to be a good series. Let me take a few questions and I'll be done. If our perception is determined by our own unique experiences, how can we see true light through darkness? Wow, I'm not exactly sure what that 
nature of that question is, if our perception is determined by our own unique experience, how can we see true light through darkness? I'm going to take a shot. I, it sounds to me that, okay, if, if our perception is determined by these experiences that we have in life, how can we ever rise above that to see what's true? And there, there's where you get into the, the horror of what Jesus was saying. Because invariably in this room, and those of you watching online, there's many of us that think we're right, but we're wrong. We think we possess light, but it's really darkness. In other words, we have worldviews that are sorting out all the data and giving us wrong conclusions. They're incomplete. And in that sense, we have eyes that are bad. And it, so I think the nature of the question is very interesting. One, I think particularly, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push this to a theological referent. Those of you that think that you became Christians when you made a decision, you're wrong. You see, the United States particularly has developed a system of thought called decisional regeneration. That you actually, without being saved, you got to some place where you could sort out what's right from what's wrong. And when you made a decision, it led to your regeneration. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you were dead and God made you alive. That's how you saw the light. In other words, when Paul explains that out of the second chapter in Ephesians, verse 1 to 3, he says, we were dead in our sins and trespasses, and we walked according to the course of the world and courted the prince of the power of the air, and by nature we were children of wrath even as the rest. So we were so affected towards the world that we were blinded towards any truth. And when he says in verse 4, but God, according to the great love with which he loved us, he made us alive together in Christ Jesus. By grace we're saved through faith, not of our own works. And so what he is saying, it wasn't you. It was not you. It was him. And so your perception locked you into a prison of your own affection. And it wasn't until God mercifully let you out. And so in that sense, you didn't believe and then you were regenerated, you were regenerated and started believing. Now for some of you that's hard truth, I know. It was hard for me when I first started to grasp it, but I couldn't make sense out of all those verses either. And so there's something to that and the answer to this question is that your own experience locked you in to an incarceration of both perception and interpretation from which you could not escape. And it wasn't until the liberating work of the Holy Spirit that you could see the light of day. Next question. On emotions, can't we wake up in the morning and feel positive or negative and calm or agitated without exposure to any circumstances? Oh, without, without question. I can do that about five times every minute. There's times, I, I know, take, take for instance, when you slip into sleep and you experience a dream. Now, I, there's some of you that say you don't dream. I, 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 I think you do. I just don't think you can recall them. Um, but those of us that wake up from a dream, oftentimes we're sweating. Our pulse is racing. My, my wife at times will dream and I hear her crying. 
and I'll wake her up, and it's purely a dream. And in that state, that sleep state, it's indistinguishable, indistinguishable from reality. It seems totally real. And so can we wake up agitated with, without really taking a pulse of the perception? Absolutely. And if you take that experience that I just shared to say, okay, you're, you're transitioning, your brain is moving from a sleep dream state to now awaking, and as you perceive that you're in your own bed and the, there's no monster standing there, suddenly your mind goes a different direction because of the empirical data. You see that what you formerly thought was not true. Now, it's an entirely different experience for a person who suffers from anxiety because they're not asleep. They're wide awake. I had a case probably about 10 or 15 years ago now that very intelligent woman, multiple degrees, but for some reason driving to DIA paralyzed her with fear. That was when DIA was in Kansas. Um, <laughs> but she couldn't explain it. it she was embarrassed. She said, I can't tell you what it is. I don't know if it's just the, the road. I, don't, I said, did anything ever happen on your way out there or when you got there? And she said, no. There was no rational connection between the two. And so in that sense, she couldn't just talk herself out of it. She never could. And so this is a very interesting dynamic. And I don't know, can't you wake up in the morning and feel positive or negative and calm or agitated without exposure to any circumstances? Yes, you can. You can. Now, what Calvin's saying is that this mirror that we have in the Psalms is going to reflect it all. You're, just like you would use, I'd, for my wife, about 20 years ago, I created, I built a full-length mirror. And that mirror will allow you to turn around and see a booger on the back of your pants without <laughs> kinking your neck. It just shows you an angle and a reflection that you couldn't see with your own eye at all. And that's what this does. All right, last question and I'll be done. No further questions. I always really appreciate that. So we're going we're gonna to have communion right now. The time of communion in the Scripture, according to 1 Corinthians 11, is a time in which Christians engage in self-examination. Well, what does that mean? In all likelihood, it doesn't have a direct referent. Now, I would say in a natural service like this, your examination could, should come from the benefit of this piercing light on this part of your life. And you examine yourself in that light, and Paul says when you examine yourself, God doesn't have to. So there's something so credible about the way that we can look at our lives and to be able to say, this was, here's what belongs and here's what doesn't belong, that we're able to come to this table with an anticipation of God's presence with us. We're able to come to this table with a tremendous sense of gratitude because of the, the pieces of the bread represent the brokenness of Jesus' body and the chalice of wine represent the shedding of his blood. And we're able to say, Father, after two seconds, I can see how much I need this again. Now, besides all of that internal work, it's an external testimony to the rest of us. My life is defined by that broken body, that shed blood. And so it has a double reference. Now, when, when, when people talk about it as non-Christians, 
I don't know why you would want to do it. The bread's good, but it's not that good. The wine's okay. Um, so that shouldn't be any inducement to do it. It's a, it's a deep spiritual experience. So spend a few moments, examine your heart, and come to the table if you're a Christian. Show the rest of us what it is that's at work in your life. Let's pray. Father, I would ask that this would be the kickoff to a series that you would be honored by, the things that would be said, the things that would be understood and taken into the hearts of your people, both in this room and across the world that would partake in a, a streamcast. I pray that not only would those things honor you, that they, they would do what Calvin believed they would do. They would help us to expose our hearts, that we might be able to avoid that baneful infection of hypocrisy. Help us to live better, we pray. We commit these moments to you. For we ask and pray them all in Jesus' good name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.